WDBM East Lansing. The impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. listening to Exposure on the Impact 89 FM, Michigan State University's student-run news program. I'm your host, Quinn Hoffman. Tonight on the show, we cover Red Cross with the blood donations, the local dragon boat race, and uh, an old series of interviews on the board game Dungeons & Dragons. But first, here's your weekly Impact update. Now it's time for an update from Impact News. Exposure will be back in a moment, but now here's your weekly update. 113 passengers and 12 crew members are feared to have died in a plane crash in Indonesia this morning. The military plane had left a base in the capital city of Medan and was en route to the Natuna Islands before crashing into a residential area. The aircraft was mostly occupied by military family members. Air Marshal August Supritna told NBC no one aboard the C-103 Hercules aircraft survived. However, a lot of uncertainty remains in the survivors of the crash. Supriyatna told Metro TV that 113 people were on board at one time, but the number of passengers upon the crash is unclear, having made two previous stops in Pekinbaru and Dumbai. It also is unclear how many of the 70 deaths told were passengers or ground victims. Air safety has continued to be a problem in Indonesia. Last May, UN auditors visited the country and discovered Indonesia ranked below the global average in every category and scored just 61% in airworthiness, ranking lower than impoverished neighbors Laos and Myanmar. Next, we go to Impact reporter Nina Rao with the latest edition in the 2016 presidential race. Governor Chris Christie of New Jersey announced his entrance into the 2016 presidential race on Tuesday morning. The one-time GOP star, who was elected as governor in 2009, stated that, I'm here to tell you that anxiety can be swept away by strong leadership and decisiveness to lead America again. His announcement was on vivid display in a high school gymnasium in Livingston. The son of Sicilian-American and Irish-American parents first tasted politics as his high school class president. He faces a wide field of candidates, including Jeb Bush, Scott Walker, Marco Rubio, and Donald Trump, to name a few. With your national news, I'm Nina Rao. Now Michaela Harris with an unusual occurrence in West Michigan. At approximately 11.43 this morning, a 3.3 magnitude earthquake struck 13 miles southeast of Battle Creek. This is the second earthquake in western Michigan this year, following a 4.2 magnitude earthquake which was confirmed earlier in May. The Calhoun County Sheriff Department reported that they received numerous calls about the earthquake, but no damage has been reported. Governor Snyder made a statement earlier today saying, even though they don't happen often in Michigan, earthquakes are a threat our emergency management officials are prepared and trained to handle. Snyder went on to say that today's event should serve as another reminder for Michiganders of the importance of personal preparedness for all kinds of emergencies and disasters. With your local news, I'm Michaela Harris. And finally, we go to Jack Montgomery with a recap on the BET Awards. 
Last Sunday, the BET Awards aired from Los Angeles and boasted a list of performers such as Kendrick Lamar, Janet Jackson, and Smokey Robinson. The award show lasted four hours, and according to USA Today, that was far too long considering the ill-prepared presenters and lack of awards. The mastermind behind How to Pimp a Butterfly, Kendrick Lamar, opened the show with an energetic performance of All Right off of his most recent album. Nicki Minaj accepted her sixth award for the Best Female Hip-Hop Artist, and a lot of the press surrounding the award show has been the heartfelt gesture the artist made by bringing her mother on stage with her to accept the award. Minaj also shared the stage with Beyonce for Best New Video and Sam Smith for Best New Artist. For your entertainment news, I'm Jack Montgomery. This has been your weekly update. I've been your anchor, Audrey Matus, and Exposure starts now. You are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89FM. I'm your host, Quinn Hoffman. First up on the show, we sit down with a uh, director for the Red Cross and have a conversation about blood donation in the greater Lansing area. All right, right now I'm sitting down with Todd Coleman, the communication manager for Red Cross. How are you doing today, Todd? I'm doing just fine. Thanks for having me, Quinn. Awesome. So um, I brought you in today to talk a little bit about blood donation process. How about to start us off, you just break it down. Give us step-by-step, how does somebody donate blood? Well, first of all, let me just say the the American Red Cross, I'm part of the Great Lakes region. We uh, encompass 65 counties here in the state of Michigan, um, and that includes uh, most of the lower peninsula, save for the areas in the uh, the metro Detroit area. There's five counties over there that are part of a different region, um, and we also have four counties up in the upper peninsula just over the, uh, the Mackinac Bridge. Um, we have to collect about 600 to 650 units of blood per day here in the Great Lakes region. So we hold blood drives uh, anywhere between 15 of them to about 25 blood blood drives per day here in the Great Lakes region. So for, for starters, lots of opportunities for folks who uh, may be considering, uh, who might be on the fence to to roll up a sleeve and donate blood. Uh, uh, there's definitely no shortage of, of opportunities. Um, so if you're a first-time blood donor and uh, you are, are ready to take the plunge and help save lives, and by the way, you can save up to three lives with your, your one blood donation, um, First thing that's going to happen is you're going to find a blood drive that's kind of in your area. And the best way to do that is to go to our website, redcrossblood.org. Uh, there's a place to kind of put in your um, your zip code, if you will, and it'll give you a, a list of blood drives within 5, 10, 15, 20 miles. So nailing down a mobile blood drive is the uh, the first step. Um, once you, you get that, you make your, your blood donation appointment. Um, walk-ins are accepted at a lot of our blood drives, actually all of our blood drives, but we do encourage folks to, uh, to pre-register, and that just makes the whole process, uh, I guess, flow a little easier so we know when folks are in and uh, people aren't sitting and waiting because a lot of folks will, uh, will donate either on their lunchtime. Um, a lot of students will do so in between classes, that sort of thing, so we don't like to have, have them waiting, obviously. You want to get them in and uh, make it as quick and uh, easy as possible. Um, so first thing you're going to do is uh, you're going to come to the blood drive and you will be greeted by one of our wonderful volunteers at the other uh, registration desk and um, basically what they're going to do is give you a, a booklet of uh, blood donation information basically uh, just some things that you need to know before you uh, uh, get on the bed to to make a donation um, you'll complete a basic health information form um, just something similar to what you would maybe do at a doctor's office something like that um, and also if you have a red cross donor card uh, you'll show that or you'll have to show your identification a driver's license or i guess a student ID if you're on campus here at, at Michigan State University. Um, after that, you'll uh, just kind of sit down, read your materials, that sort of thing. Once the uh, the phlebotomist or the, the collection worker is ready for you, they will uh, call you up. Um, you'll go through a, uh, a kind of a health history and a mini physical. They'll take you kind of behind a little uh, a partition, and it's all private. Um, nobody can kind of hear what's going on back there, but um, our trained collection staff members 
to ask you a little bit about your health history um, during this private and confidential interview. Um, and then they'll take a, a kind of a mini physical. You'll you'll have your temperature taken. They'll, they'll test your iron levels, which is very important to give blood. Um, that's one of the main reasons folks are deferred is because they have low blood iron. Um, take your blood pressure. They'll take your pulse to, to make sure your health is uh, in good shape. And it's to protect you as, as much as anything, you the blood donor. So you're all good to go. They say, great, have a seat. We'll call you up when you're, you're ready. Um, and they come and get you, and uh, that's when the donation uh, starts to happen. They will lay you down on one of our beautifully comfortable Red Cross beds, if you will. Um, the staff will clean your arm, and then they will insert the, uh, the needle into your arm for the, the blood draw. And uh, that's the, the part that a lot of folks are scared of, those first-time donors. Does it hurt? Is it really painful? Um, it's just like a little pinprick. It's, it's uh, uh, very almost unnoticeable, to be honest with you. And I've talked to a lot of first-time donors that uh, once they're done making their donation, they were just kind of you know flabbergasted as to why they were so, so worried about making the blood donation. Um, so they'll clean your arm. They'll insert the, uh, the, the needle for the draw. And the, the actual blood donation process takes about 7 to 10 minutes. Uh, I think the whole time from when you walk into the blood donation center or the blood drive until you leave is about an hour. So it's a pretty quick process. Again, the donation itself takes about 7 to 10 minutes. Um, once you're done giving your pint, one pint, which is a unit of blood, they will remove the needle and uh, put a bandage on your arm. And uh, then you get to head over to the, uh, the Red Cross Canteen where we have our, our Keebler snacks. We have, uh, you know, delicious juice, that sort of thing, so you can enjoy some refreshments and your body can kind of adjust to that slight decrease in the uh, the fluid that was just taken from your body, basically. Um, and then you uh, are, are good to go. Um, you uh, can leave and, and, you know, again, enjoying that you've uh, done something really good and you've, you've helped save up to three lives with that, that one blood donation. So you mentioned that you need to gather, I believe you said you need to gather 600 units. Um, Correct. Yeah, here here in the Great Lakes region, again, for the uh, the 65 counties that we serve, um, 600 to 650 units of blood per day to uh, supply the hospitals uh, that, that we serve. So how close do you come to that? We uh, usually hit it, I would say. Um, sometimes we go way over. Um, sometimes we're, we're not quite as successful. A lot of things, a lot of logistics go into to setting up a blood drive, running a blood drive. Um, you have to uh, take into account deferrals, folks who may have low, low iron, um, folks who uh, may get there and uh, may not be feeling very well. We have folks who will uh, maybe get a cold the day of or two days before, and they're not feeling quite up to, to making a blood donation, and we appreciate their honesty. First of all, um, we, we certainly would rather have healthy individuals coming in and uh, um, making a blood donation than not. Um, so I, I think it varies. I mean, we uh, the, the blood supply right now is is very adequate, and uh, we are certainly serving the hospitals and those patients that need it most. Um, but I would say they, the numbers fluctuate, and we could collect anywhere from 25 to 30 units at a blood drive, and we've had blood drives where it's 150 to 200 units, and those are those are big blood drives with with a lot of donors. Um, and just the, the units that we collect doesn't really show how many people may have come in to make a donation because there are deferrals. Um, you know, it's less than 1%, but, uh, you know, folks do you know, get deferred for, for whatever reason. Maybe they were out of the country. Um, again, maybe they're, they're not feeling well, that sort of thing. Right. So if you do fall short or sometimes go over, um, what, what is the process there? Because um, obviously other areas will go over and have extra blood and other times will need extra blood. So is there some sort of network where um, the Red Cross transfers blood? Yeah, there is. And we, uh, it's not as if uh, we're 
we're working on if we don't get those 600 units of, or to 650 units of blood we're going to be short um, blood does have a shelf life and we do uh, have blood on the shelves it is the blood that's on the shelves now that will help in the event of an emergency uh, take for instance uh, you know Superstorm Sandy a couple years ago out on the East Coast um, you know those type of you know events those type of uh, emergencies we we can never really prepare for uh, so we make sure that we do have an adequate supply on hand um, in the event of a situation like that where maybe a bunch of blood drives are canceled due to severe weather tornadoes uh, power outages here in the state of Michigan we obviously have some pretty uh, pretty interesting winter times a lot of ice a lot of snow um, a lot of schools get canceled during the winter time um, save we're holding a blood drive at that school on the day that the school is canceled because of severe weather we're not holding our blood drive at that school, and we're obviously not collecting those units. Um, if we ever get to an instance where there is a shortage or uh, we fall into an urgent need for blood, um, the Red Cross is part of a national network. Uh, blood is able to be uh, moved from one area to another where that blood is needed. So um, it, it's a very unique position, and, and we uh, here in Michigan, we are a, a big export region is what we're called here. Uh, so a lot of the blood um, that may turn up short in some of the other areas of the country. Um, the, the state of Michigan, the Great Lakes region, is one of those regions that will help kind of supply those, those, uh, those regions that may be short or uh, maybe in a critical need due to weather, due to uh, an emergency, that sort of thing. So Michigan's a little bit better on the blood donation part than uh, some other areas? I would say that's, uh, that's a good way to put it, certainly. Um, but I, I would say the donors who come for the Red Cross and donate blood to the Red Cross, fantastic group of donors um, and very, very dedicated. I mean, I can't tell you how many folks I've met who have uh, uh, donated 30, 40, 50 gallons of blood over their lifetime, and they've continued to do it. You can donate whole blood every 56 days, and um, a lot of those folks are there every 56 days to, to make that donation, and uh, we certainly appreciate them. <laughs> So can you tell me a little bit about what, how the Red Cross will respond if there is a decline in blood donation? How do you guys try to get people coming out? Well, right now, for instance, the summertime is a, a really challenging time for the American Red Cross and blood collection and a number of reasons for that. Um, high school college kids are not in class they are on their summer vacation uh, high school college kids account for 20 percent of the blood donations that come into the red cross so when they're out of school and on their vacation we're not holding as many blood drives michigan state university campus is a, is a big supporter of the red cross we hold a lot of blood drives here on campus um, obviously more during the school year but we also hold them during the summertime because not everybody's going home um but, uh, yeah, we uh, have just launched our summer campaign. We call it 100 Days of Summer, 100 Days of Hope, and we're asking our donors to, uh, to choose their day to donate. They have 100 chances this summer to, to make an appointment and make a donation. Obviously, folks heading up north, too. I mean, it's not just the students. It's, uh, it's everybody in Michigan. The weather's great, and uh, they, they want to get up north on their vacations and uh, you know, get together with family and friends, and we certainly don't blame them. Um, so blood donation will often take a backseat to, uh, uh, to, to other things, uh, the beach, you know, picnics, that sort of thing. So right. um, our, our campaign is, is, a, is a wonderful one. This is the third year we've been doing this. Uh, we offer incentives around the holidays, um, really cool T-shirts, some neat little hats that we'll uh, give to all our donors who come out. And, uh, you know, we kick this off on uh, um, Memorial Day, and it'll run through Labor Day. We have a great little promotion coming up over the 4th of July. 
And uh, so we have a lot of little incentives like that. But what we say is we need uh, two additional donors to come out to our blood drives during the summertime for us to to uh, meet the needs of our hospitals or to meet that, uh, you know, back to that 600, 650 unit uh, goal that we placed here in our, our region. Um, so we have a number of, re- you know, a number of ways we do that. Incentives, uh, uh, little things to say thank you to our donors, um, folks like myself, uh, communications folks coming out and just talking about the need, the importance of donating blood, that sort of thing. So... Um, to kind of wrap up this interview here, uh, could you give us potentially some upcoming dates where people that are listening might know uh, where they could head um, and maybe why they should come out? Well, I'll tell you, the best way to find a blood uh, blood drive is to go to our website, redcrossblood.org, as I mentioned earlier, and put in your zip code, and you can find drives as near or as far as you want. Um, our blood donation center is right down, basically down the street, right over in Lansing on Saginaw, and that's open Monday through Friday. Um, and that's, uh, they're, they're collecting blood there all the time at our blood donation center. As far as drives around the campus, they kind of vary. And right now that we're in the kind of the summertime, um, they are kind of sporadic here on the MSU campus. Uh, but again, there's a, there's a very active Red Cross club here at MSU. Um, those folks are very active in helping us get the word out about that. But I think the best way uh, to tell your listeners how to, to find a blood drive is to, to go to our website. Um, and for those, uh, you know, this is great for the, the college crowd. Um, we now have a new Red Cross blood donor app for your smartphone and for your, for your iPhone, if you will. It's a free download. You can find blood donation opportunities there. You can make your appointments on that uh, blood donor app. Uh, you can also track your lifetime donations. And uh, there's some other neat things, challenging your friends to donate. And, uh, you know, you can kind of give little uh, virtual prizes to your friends and that sort of thing. So it's, you know, there are lots of opportunities. And, and again, redcrossblood.org, probably the best way to do it. Awesome. Thanks so much for talking to me today, Todd. Thanks for having us, Quinn. Appreciate it. You are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89FM. I'm your host, Quinn Hoffman. If you want to join the conversation, you can on Twitter at WDBM. Next up, we go to Dragon Boat Racing with Cindy Allwood, a fundraiser for the Women's Center of Greater Lansing. The Women's Center of Greater Lansing hosts a variety of fundraisers, and this summer on August 30th, they will be hosting the Capital City Dragon Boat Races here on the Adato Riverfront Park. And here with me to talk about the 2015 Dragon Boat Race is Cindy Allwood. Thank you for coming to sit with me today, Cindy. You're welcome. Glad to be here. So let's start off with just getting to know, um, what is a dragon boat race? Well, dragon boating is like a 2,000-year-old Chinese custom that has been in the United States for probably 30, 35 years now. The boats are 40 feet long. They have the head of a dragon and the tail of a dragon. The kind of boat that we use is a Hong Kong-style boat, so you actually have a flag catcher in the front that lays over the head of the dragon, And they weigh about 1,200 pounds, and they hold 20 people, 18 paddlers, a drummer, and the fly catcher. Wow. What kind of people are getting involved into this fundraiser and actually, I'm assuming, racing these dragon boats? Yes, yes. Oh, all kinds, from corporations to groups of cancer survivors, domestic violence survivors, um, just uh, groups of community friends that want to get together and race. We have a book club. They're called the Aft Kickers, and they had a boat last year and actually won their division, so they're back this year. Um, we have one professional dragon boat team here in the Lansing area called the Anahata Dragon Boat Team, and I'm not sure. I, I know they're not sending their professional team, but they may be sending um, a group of folks that are learning dragon boating. What kind of support do you get from the MSU community? 
Well, that's the really wonderful thing is last year in 2014 was the 10th anniversary of all of the Confucius Institutes around the United States. And there is a Confucius Institute here on campus, and they were a major sponsor. They had a team, as did the Confucius Institutes of Wayne State University and Western Michigan University, that the other school down the way couldn't be bothered <laughs> to show up. I'll just say that. <laughs> um, they don't do as many diverse kinds of things, I guess, as the other Confucius Institutes do. And so it, it was so wonderful to have them there and to talk about the, the old history of dragon boating. And then the um, kinesiology team or kinesiology group from campus was there. They had done a team, I know, in 2012. I'm not sure if they were here in 2011. We've been trying to get some of the sororities and fraternities involved just as a team building exercise and we'll hey we'll take anybody and you don't have to have a whole team to participate if you're a single or you have a couple of friends but you don't have enough to put a team together just let us know and there's always teams that need extra paddlers always do you guys rent these dragon boats yes. and then have them so people can yes, use the them? american dragon boat association actually works on an all-volunteer basis so all of the steers people who come are, are are coming to all the different races that they have as volunteers. So they bring the boats in. They're they're out of Dubuque, Iowa. So they bring oh. the boats in. They have people. They're different steers. People meet them. There's there's a couple of steers who live in the Grand Rapids area. There's some from South Haven. Um, um, there may be one from the Southeast Michigan area. Otherwise, they come in from Iowa. Interesting. Yep, Iowa. And they stay. Yep. I know. Who knew, right? <laughs> is dragon boating like kind of a popular sport in America? A, re a growing popular It's growing. Sport? It's the fastest growing non-motorized water sport in the country. Huh. And so what made you guys think that dragon boat race? Did you bring that into Lansing? What was that kind of like? Well, dragon boating has been around. Um, it was started in Lansing in 2011 okay. by the Greater Lansing Sports Authority and the group that runs the Lansing Center. They're called LEPFA, Lansing Entertainment and Public Facilities Association, I think is what their acronym is. And the first two years they held it, um, they realized that they really needed to hand it off to um, one group because they both have very full plates, both organizations. And when you run the Lansing Center and Cooley Lawsuit Stadium and all the other things that the Sports Authority does, it, this and I understand completely why they decided to hand it over. Mm -hmm. And dragon boating in the U.S. has always had a strong charity element to it. And so, and especially around the area of breast cancer. So they came to us and, and asked if we would take it over in 2013 we just were not in a place to do that when they asked. So the the um, the river was silent in 2013. <laughs> and they came back in 2014 and said, uh, do you guys think you're ready? And we said, sure, why not? I mean, I literally did not even know what dragon boating was. I'd never seen a boat. I had no idea what it was about. But it sounded really awesome. And it's something like we sh that we should do. Mm -hmm. What is your role with the... Um this, the races here in Lansing? We are the organizers. The Women's Center of Greater Lansing is the organizer of the race. And then we also receive the benefits. Any um, donations that are left over uh, come to us for all of our programs, our operations expenses, and we run a cancer care program. 
Okay, can you maybe talk a bit more about what these programs, the fundraisers benefiting these more specific programs? Sure, sure. The Women's Center, we just celebrated our 10th anniversary. We turned 10 June 21st. Mm-hmm. So we're, um, we've been around a while, but a lot of people still don't know who we are, so it's nice of you to ask that. Um, we help women realize their potential. And what that means is that we help women become economically self-sufficient. So our focus is really on employment, on preparing women along the lifespan. And we work with girls, too, and talk to them about the STEM professions and about um, areas, career areas where they can come out with a minimum amount of education and earn a good living. And because um, girls still are kind of routed into the helping professions. And while it's a noble cause, it doesn't always pay the bills with one job. So we really want women and their families to have the opportunity to work one job that has benefits and, and a good pay and opportunities for advancement and things like that. So in order to do that, we look at the barriers that that woman faces to achieving economic self-sufficiency. And those are the support services that we provide. That's awesome. Yeah, so that's what the center does. And then among our programs, we're just launching this, is our cancer care program. And that is a, uh, a program specifically for um, women and men who are cancer survivors. Um, we learned that about 40% of women w- who have a breast cancer diagnosis in particular lose their jobs. And once that starts, things spiral out of control really quickly. So we have staff that are trained to work with cancer survivors, with women who may not be able to go back to the same type of employment that they had prior to their cancer diagnosis. It's a little bit the same for women who have lived through physical domestic violence, where they may not be able to do the same job. A lot, About 80% of the women that we serve have a history of domestic violence or sexual assault. So we have specially trained staff, and we are an intern training site for um, graduate students in the helping professions. And so we provide all of those services and prepare women to go back to return to the workforce or to the job they had or maybe or a career that they had or maybe something different, depending. Right. Okay. Awesome. What has been some of the feedback that you've gotten from uh, the Dragon Boat Races, be that from companies or perhaps some of the women that you've been working with that get involved? It's it's a good, great question. I'm glad you asked it. Um, most people think that dragon boating is all about physical strength. And if they, they're not strong or they don't have upper body strength, that they can't do it. And that's wrong. That's a myth. Um, the MSU football team could be beaten by a group of high school athletes if the high school athletes are more in sync and listen to their leader than the MSU football team. Not, nothing against the football team. I'm trying to make a comparison. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily about brute strength. It's about teamwork. And it's about doing your job where you are in the boat and learning the proper paddle stroke because it's not a kayak stroke. It's not a canoe stroke. It's its own dragon boat stroke. And it's a little bit different, and it's, you kind of have to relearn. If, you're, if you did any sort of paddle sports before, you have to relearn um, how to do a dragon boat stroke. And so we had, um, last year we had a couple of youth teams and we ended up on uh, race day because you have a practice day on Saturday and then actual races take place on Sunday. And on race day, they lost a few kids. It was the um, it was a local high school cross country team. And so their parents filled in 
which is very allowable, and, and we actually thought it was a, a great idea. And they had a great competition, and the parents responded. I had no idea how hard this would be. And we call it the hardest three minutes of your life <laughs> because it's a short race. It's 300 meters, and you paddle like you've never paddled before. And if you don't have a lot of upper body strength, you're going to feel it. But it doesn't mean that you can't win, and it doesn't mean that your team is not good. So anybody can dragon boat. That's the beauty of it. And I say that all the time when I go and try to recruit teams and talk to sponsors and that sort of thing. And they just they don't believe me until they actually get in the boat and find out that anybody can dragon boat. Right. Isn't there you I think I saw online that you even had a little 15 minute like training session mm -hmm. right, right before you oh, actually yeah. race. Oh, yeah. We train on site so you don't have to even have been in a boat or held a paddle before in your life. And, yep, every team goes through it. You get a couple practice runs before we even start doing the heats to determine what division that you're in. By the third run, people have it. The first two are, are a little wobbly <laughs> if they've never done it before because you got to learn how to watch the person in front of you. you. It is a total team sport. There's no individuation about it. It's a total team sport. And we sell it as a team-building opportunity to corporations. Mm -hmm. If you want to get find out if your team can really work together as a team put them in a dragon boat you know <laughs> in order to do that they really have to work together yeah i can see how that also would kind of work with the women's center because mm -hmm. do women in from the center get involved absolutely so last year we had um, two survivor teams and this is something too i think that because women don't n naturally have a lot of upper body strength we have to work a little harder at it because of our, our bone and muscle structure a lot of women don't think they can do it and this is something that really pushes the boundaries that we set, the artificial limitations that we set for ourselves. It may be an opportunity for a woman to reclaim herself, to get re-in-touch with her body, especially after violent trauma to her body or even cancer treatment, anything like that. It's a really good opportunity. That's how it started in the U.S. was with a breast cancer surgeon who used it as a therapeutic tool for her breast cancer patients to rebuild their upper body strength. That's beautiful stuff. It is. It so really is. How can someone get involved team wise and then maybe someone wants to get involved with the women's center as well? Okay. Well, the Capital City Dragon Boat has its own website. So it's capitalcitydragonboat.com. Okay. And you can go there and send a message and we'll get it if you're interested in volunteering. There's a team registration form that you can download. We only work with team captains as you might be able to figure out, and your listeners too, if we took uh, phone calls from 22 people times 25 teams, that's a lot of people to have to try to manage. So we work only with team captains. There's a captain's meeting coming up in the middle of July. We ha actually have a training manual that we can electronically send, so you can do all that stuff right from the website. And you can volunteer from the website as well. And then go to the, the uh, Women's Center for Greater Lansing website, which is our name, .org, and if you Google it, it'll come right up. If you do Google Women's Center, you get us. It took us a long time to get there, but we're finally in that number one slot. We're very proud of that. And that will tell you kind of what we do, who we are. And you can also email us through the website and ask questions or call or volunteer. Our, um, our volunteer opportunities are a little bit limited because of the kind of work that we do. There's a high level of confidentiality. And we also fill a lot of volunteer slots with interns and with we offer the opportunity for clients to to earn a good job recommendation. If they haven't had, if they've been out of the workforce for a while, 
and they don't have a current job reference, they can come in and we can teach them how to do things and they can get a reference from us. If anybody has questions, please just give us a call, 372-9163, and we'll get it. We'll get your question answered as soon as possible. All right. Well, that was, I've been talking to, if you're just tuning in, that was Cindy Allwood, the exec- Executive Director and Chief Hope Officer of the Women's Center of Greater Lansing. Thank you for sitting down with me today, Cindy. No problem. Thank you for asking. You are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89FM. I am your host, Quinn Hoffman. Coming up next to wrap up the uh, second half of the show, we have a series of interviews done early in the year um, about the board game Dungeons & Dragons. In modern times, a lot of American culture has started to revolve around what was once considered nerdy. We see movies that focus on comic book superheroes and fantasy novels that were once considered only for geeks. And demonstrating deep knowledge on these subjects is now widely accepted. In 2013, James Franco and Stephen Colbert had what the internet dubbed as the Tolkien Showdown. The crowd cheered as Colbert made James Franco look like he had never even opened a Tolkien book with his astounding knowledge of Galadriel, the Lady of the Wood. And this is all happening on national television between two celebrities in the forefront of pop culture. As we continue to drive as a community towards these nerdy habits, we're starting to see a culture that's constructed by seemingly unseen forces. The things that weren't popular at the time are now the base for what is considered pop culture. So tonight we're going to look into perhaps the biggest unseen influence in this geek-driven world. Dungeons and Dragons. Okay, I know what you're thinking. Frick off, Quinn. We all know what Dungeons & Dragons is. Well, you're right. Everyone has heard of it. But do we know how much it's really influenced video games, movies, and general pop culture today? As a kid growing up, I personally never got the chance to play it. Whereas World of Warcraft and Lord of the Rings were getting cool, D&D was still considered too nerdy for most of my friends. Although it sounds silly, I found a lot of people felt the same way. Or did you just immediately start uh, well, playing? Well, I knew about it in high school, but never played until college, so... Yeah, it was the same for me. Those are members of the Spartan Board Gamers Club. I sat in on one of their weekly games of Dungeons & Dragons, and they expressed some of the same feelings I felt. No, I, don't, I wasn't there aware of anyone that played in my high school that I knew of. So okay, there's no one that could my play. My friends didn't really do anything with it, so that was pretty much it. He struggled finding anyone to play with before college. It sounded all too familiar. It's actually pretty hard to find people ready to play until you get into a huge pool of people like you do when you're at college. But it's such a powerful cultural factor. I mean, who hasn't heard of Dungeons & Dragons? But then, why haven't as many people played it? Things like geek culture. Because 3.5 has about 100 extra books. Satanic cults or things like that. Okay, okay, let's backtrack. Let's go back to where all this began. Where did the game come from? Uh, my name's Jeremy Plesko. Um, I am the owner here at Fortress Comics and Games, and uh, pretty much uh, purveyor of all things geeky, I guess. Jeremy owns a local shop in East Lansing that focuses mostly on card games and tabletop games, like Dungeons & Dragons. I've owned the store for, uh, this is going on my fifth year, the... Store's been here since, I want to say, 1998, I believe, was the open. 
with miniatures games, uh, we have a, war, a pretty big Warhammer 40k following. Then we have uh, some Hordes and War Machine, other uh, other miniature games as well that are played. And then, of course, role-playing game-wise, you know, we support everything Dungeons & Dragons and Pathfinder, which is a version of Dungeons & Dragons, etc. I mean, as far as role-playing games go, it sort of is the... I mean, there were other games out there for, like, miniatures games, but Dungeons & Dragons sort of form, or, like sprung up from, like, historical miniatures games, so it's kind of in what we consider a, like, role-playing game. It's kind of the first true to what, like, you know, since the 70s it's role-playing games have been. But first does not always make you the most popular. Warhammer 40k is kind of the most popular miniature game that we deal with, and um, Warhammer 40k is actually probably closer to, um, is probably closer to, like, some of the miniature games like uh, Chainmail, which was the game that when they had a miniatures game, it was Chainmail, and then they decided to kind of adapt that and do, like, a more role-playing oriented game, and that became Dungeons & Dragons. So actually, some of the games, while still heavily inspired by Dungeons & Dragons to this day, kind of are the... You know, the miniature games are kind of the predecessor to what role-playing games kind of sprung from. Miniatures is a term Jeremy kept using to describe these games like Warhammer. It's kind of like a more complicated chess, but for like old military battles. Okay, he explained it better. The idea is they, there were a lot of historical miniatures as in, um, like let's say 1950, 1960. Um, there were a fair number of miniatures games where you painted revolutionary soldiers or you painted up little tin or pewter or lead, actually, in a lot of cases. Actually, lead was the most common. Uh, you painted little lead figurines of, uh, sometimes they were even like, um, like, uh, the War, uh, War of the Roses. Sometimes they were, um, like different historical games and then you would use dice and other things and you'd reenact these battles and see if you as a general could, uh, you know, could win on Waterloo instead, you know, instead of losing at Waterloo. You know, historical miniatures and, like, um, Battlefield miniature games do predate Dungeons & Dragons, but its influences as a game and as, like, kind of a... has kind of influenced them to change, you know, in a way. Like, it's kind of a, kind of a cycle. Or it's kind of a circle, you know what I mean? Like, it's... While, they're, while the type of game they are is older, the very content of the game is a like, kind of moved along to Dungeons & Dragons and... So from those games, we got D&D. Um, and so that kind of, those games existed. And then Gary Gygax and a couple of other guys, um, they decided to make the game Chainmail, which was try to make like a fantasy version of that. Try to make a more, you know, what if, you know, instead of just having soldiers, there was a barbarian in there and what happens if there was other stuff. You know, very, very, I guess, very pulp, you know, pulp fantasy material. Um, so they tried to mix a little bit more of that less historical, more fantasy. They made a miniatures game, and then they were like, well, what happens if we... And D&D kind of sprung from, after they made that game, they wanted a version where you, instead of just playing as, like, a general moving miniatures on a battlefield and rolling dice, what happens if there was a game where you tried to take on the persona of just one of those models? And instead of fighting, you know, on a battlefield, what happens if it was in a dungeon and you had to go fight a dragon, or you had to go fight a demon, or... Maybe just a orc or goblin. And so that was kind of where that sprung. This guy, I guess, trying to tell a slightly more narrative, not slightly, extremely more narrative, uh, a more narrative version of those games instead of like a more, I am pushing 50 miles across the battlefield at your unit of 50 models. And then over here, I'm going to move 20 here. You have a character that you play, um, which is noteworthy because it is not yourself, nor are you some third-party general who, you know, is, you know, 
kind of the eye of God standing down, you know, staring down at a battlefield, moving things like video game style, like Total War or other games. Instead, you are a single actor in that, and your role is to build, play, and react and do things as that actor. Um, so, like, one of the big things is the immersion of yourself as a single actor in the, in the game. So, I mean, I think they, they hit the nail on the head on something that the community wanted, but they didn't know they wanted, because before that, you know, there wasn't really a large market. There wasn't one. Before that, there was some very strange people who did it, you know, who made up rules and did things themselves, but there was no mass-marketed game. So it's a little like a strategy game, but they threw in some acting and personality in there. Oh, and people thought it was Satan worship. And to some degree, there was at the time a religion, among the extremely conservative, too. I mean, we, I mean, we'll stand these people, you know, to this day, there are still people who believe this, but it is by playing a role, by playing a role-playing game that has demons in it, you must be channeling Satan into the world type of thing. It's When I sat in on a game with the board gaming club, they confirmed the satanic suspicions society had when it first developed. Well, I mean, there's going to be uh, issues about that uh, ever since, you know, the original uh, D&D came out, second edition I think it was, where uh, I think it was an MSU where people were worried about, you know, satanic rituals in the steam pipes. Uh, but it's it's such a... It's, it's really hard as someone who plays it to see where even they're coming from with thinking there's satanic rituals involved. It's, you know, me and my nerd friends go get some Doritos and sit around laughing with each other for about four hours and go home. So the game had a rough start, but I could see why people may not have been wholly accepting at first. It's very clear, even just sitting in on one, that it's not a normal okay, board it game. It goes in order of who we ganked at what point. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we, we, killed, we got the, the dragon heart, we ran from Jin, we, yep, we, we went to the night hag. We're looking to get the night hag's soul bag. We're looking to uh, take that from her. So. Actually, you were going to a party. I asked the dungeon masters to give me a quick summary of the game. Yep, uh, so we end up running the game. So the way that D&D works is that you have uh, someone running called the Dungeon Master, kind of setting up the rules and setting up the encounters, and then the, everyone else at the table are players who kind of run through the adventure. You have a real focus on role-playing your character. So a lot of games, like let's say Clue, you just have a piece uh, of plastic or whatever else, uh, and you don't really have much backstory behind the character or anything like that. Dungeons and Dragons is very customizable. Any type of character you want to play, you can play. And it has a heavy focus on being able to show what makes your character different. So basically, you just make your character and try to play your role in an adventure. It was kind of like they're all just telling a story together. Oh, and with a butt ton of stats. We got here hit points, armor class, strength, dex, constitution, intelligence, wisdom, charisma. All of them are uh, different stats that you use for different things in the game. Uh, initiative, which you heard us rolling earlier, uh, is about turn order, and whoever gets the highest number gets to go first, and then the next highest, and so on. Okay, so now we know how the basics of the game work. So why is this important? How has all of this affected our culture? For this question, we turn back to our friend at the fortress, Jeremy. Had a huge impact on just how role-playing games in general work, uh, since many of them have used certain parts of their rules or adapted small portions to be slightly different. Uh, but, I mean, huge numbers of role-playing games. He was essentially telling me that almost all modern RPG games, video games or otherwise, 
have been almost directly inspired by D&D. Anytime you see a game where you play a character with stats like strength, constitution, intelligence, that all started with Dungeons and Dragons. That's kind of, I mean, that's kind of thing too. Is Dungeons and Dragons was heavily influenced by like Lord of the Rings, so like you have a lot of influences, kind of back and forth. But at the same time, without Dungeons and Dragons, I don't think we would have had the same kind of a large fan base that would be reading Harry Potter books and going to see a Lord of the Rings movie. Like, I mean, I think before like you know the mid seventies, I don't think you would have seen a large theatrical release of a movie such that, I mean, the Hobbit, the Hobbit movie or Hobbit like movie was a cartoon from like early 80s and that was mainly consumed by Dungeons and Dragons players so and I mean that was not even a full like you know blockbuster theater release and so in a weird kind of way Dungeons and Dragons was inspired by Lord of the Rings but at the same time it allowed Lord of the Rings to gain a very large kind of footing in the populace so interesting things like that in my opinion at least yeah. this is all well and good but this is just one man who's played a lot of games I can't really just take his word for all this, right? Enter Brad King. Much of the first 15 or 20 years of computer game development, all of the people that were developing those games, many of them, most of them, grew up playing Dungeons & Dragons. Brad was the co-author of a book titled Dungeons & Dreamers, which essentially tackles the same question. What is the historical and cultural significance of D&D? Text adventures in the 70s, through first-person you know, games in the 80s, and then into the development of the massively multiplayer um, online role-playing games, all of the people that were developing those games, many of them, most of them, grew up playing Dungeons & Dragons. Um, and that was their first exposure back in the early 70s to like this community-type storytelling. And so as computers came online and as they became more pervasive, all these kids that were playing these games with their friends wanted to recreate that kind of game um, on this new thing that they were gravitating to. So as we were going around and reporting the history of the game for the book, um, people like Richard Garriott and Warren Spector and, and John Carmack and John Romero, all of these people who developed Doom and the Ultima series and things like that, not only played but were fanatical about playing and drew very specific lines from the games they created and these big, lush, virtual worlds where you can run around and do everything to wanting to recreate that experience of playing around a table with a group of friends, um, you know, this tabletop game. So that was, to us, that was one of the most interesting parts of the story is that without Dungeons & Dragons, obviously computer games would still exist, but they would look very differently because that game was communal and it was about you know, friendship and forming bonds with people and playing together. Um, and winning wasn't necessarily about getting the most points. It was about, the old cliche was sports, it was about how you played the game. Um, and so rule structures were very loose. Um, and that leads to things like sandbox games today, right, where you are in virtual worlds where you can go do anything you want to. That was sort of the essence of Dungeons & Dragons. I mean, it was definitely the start of um, a certain strand of computer games. So there were people at MIT in the 60s that made Space War and things like that, and those games were based on science fiction books. But when you talk about things like World of Warcraft or um, Doom or Ultima uh, or even like the Medal of War series or, or, or things of that nature, games that are worlds in which you can do anything you want to, 
and winning, there's lots of different ways to get to a winning strategy. All of that traces itself back to Dungeons and, and Dragons. Um, because it, 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 what's really intriguing to me is that modern developers, people that are developing really after you know, the new millennium, have less direct connection to Dungeons and Dragons, although it's coming back around now. But they were making games based on games that these other people made. Um, Doom, Quake, those kinds of games had, uh, you know, have been at the epicenter of a lot of what people have tried to recreate. And those get, I mean, Doom and Quake were made based on characters that John Carmack and John Romero played in Dungeons, you know, Dungeons and Dragons. So are modern games borrowing directly from D&D? Not necessarily. But are they borrowing from games that borrowed directly from D&D in the past? Definitely. There's a reason that orcs show up in games, right? There's a reason that you have different classes of um, characters in these games. And that was, that was a basis of this tabletop game. But D&D isn't even 50 years old yet. How could it have influenced so much in such a small amount of time? Well, it's, it's one of those happenstances of history, right? So, like, tabletop gaming had been around. So, you know, Dungeons & Dragons grows out of this this idea of wargaming, which has been around for hundreds of years. That in and of itself wasn't new. It was the game that, that um, sort of captured the cultural zeitgeist of the time, got very popular with the kind of people who happened to also be gravitating towards this new personal computer that was developing. So you have to remember, in the early 70s, most computers were at colleges. They were mainframes. They were big, giant computers. People didn't have them in their homes. And so in the mid-70s and the late 70s, as the computer starts to become a thing that people have or more people have access to, these kids that are playing this you know, fantasy game are also attracted to this new thing, the computer and the Internet. So before the web, there was still the Internet, and you could connect to people all over the world. People like Richard Bartle, who's over in um, England, makes – MUD, right, the multi-user dungeon, which is basically a text adventure Dungeons and Dragons on a college computer that anybody from around the world can play. And MUDs, again, MUDs are also one of the influences of computer games today. The rule sets and the ways in which you interact come from that. MUD is a representation of Dungeons and Dragons. So it is this sort of happenstance of this five or six year period where the game comes online, Dungeons and Dragons happens this group of people play it, this group of people also happens to be attracted to this new computer network thing that's happening. And so as they're creating things, they're creating the game that they play. I think it's instructive, you know, when we talk about geek culture, like I I was a geek, I was a nerd, and continue to be that. I find it fascinating that the games that were being made weren't sports games, right? People weren't making football games and basketball games. That was certainly a thing, but the games that drove the early development were really more of these communal-style Dungeons & Dragons-type games, whether it be Mud, whether it be Zork, whether it be Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, all games that were created, whether it be Ultima. Those were created because the people that were driving that were D&D players. Okay, so people who play D&D just by chance happen to be the people who are creating today's popular culture. So does that mean things are changing? Are we getting nerdier as a society? I've now I've lived through four of these decades, so I can tell you that it's changed. Um, 
the ways in which we view them are differently. I mean, if look, if you just look around um, and see what's happening in the popular culture, what's the biggest movie franchise? It's Marvel, right? Like that's comic book stuff. That was for many, many years. Um, people like me read them, and that's who read them. And now it is a part of the general culture. And, and I use geek culture sort of. Um, I don't use it generally in real life because what I tell people is so much of what we used to do is now part of what everybody does. And we don't get to have ownership of that anymore. Um, My wife, who was a ballet dancer, she's now seen all the Marvel movies, right? And when the Marvel movies come out, we watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., like she gets excited to go see them. That wouldn't have happened 30 years ago. And I know it wouldn't have because it didn't, right? It happens today for very specific kinds of reasons. So, I think that it is more pervasive than it used to be. This has created a cultural identity for people that grew up doing these things and claiming them as their own, as, even as they felt sort of ostracized from society. Now that everybody's claiming you know, that they are a geek and that they are into that, that's created some strife. And we see things like that in gamer games, right, where we, we see a group of people who are um, sort of unwilling to let go of anything and don't and don't think anybody else has the right to that culture. But that's a very tiny percentage of what those folks do. If you go to E3, if you go to Gen Con, if you go to Comic-Con, any of those places, it is a vast and diverse group of people that do those things. So everything from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which makes billions of dollars, and that's not because there's 30 kids in a basement going to see it a million times. It's because everybody around the world is seeing it. All the way down to these conferences uh, and the kinds of things we're creating. I think that maybe people still characterize folks like that, but it's a, it's a remnant of a time that hasn't really reflected reality in 20 years. So I think the stigma remains on quote-unquote nerdy culture, but I think Dylan from the Board Gaming Club summed it up best. Uh, and, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's nerdy, but, you know, what isn't these days? So are you convinced? Is D&D just a super nerdy game from the 80s, or is it something more? Here at the station, we decided to give it a try. So we rounded up some of our coworkers and honored our nerdy forefathers. Taunt him. Okay, so now you can take your action, which will be uh, an attack. What, what, what My name is Dom Korzeki. I'm the promotions director here, and uh, I am a high elf druid. My name is Phil Beard. I am the engineering director here at The Impact, and I am a rogue gnome. I'm Dakota Johnston. I'm the video director here at Impact. Uh, I'm a rogue gnome, and I just want to point out that I created that character before Phil Beard. Uh, My name is Kevin Cordes. I am the assistant program director here, and I am playing a human ranger. Yeah, that beats his AC. For Impact Exposure, I'm Quinn Hoffman. When you're deep in a dark dungeon and the cleric's down and dying and you've taken all the potions you had left and you feel like you are doomed because that demon you set loose is coming after you and you can smell its breath and the door between you and it is pretty thin and the wizard is all out of spells the fighters took a few too many hits this thing it came from hell it seems like it can't be Fights are won by skill, some are won by luck. Don't ever give in. 
That's it for the show tonight. You've been listening to Exposure on the Impact 89 FM. I'm your host, Quinn Hoffman. I'd like to give a special thanks to our station manager, Sammy Leonardo, our general manager, Ed Glazer, our assistant news director, Audrey Matus, um, and our other assistant news director, Daniel Razel. You can find this episode as well as all other episodes of Exposure on our website at impact89fm.org. I've been your host, Quinn Hoffman, and this has been Exposure. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.